Welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. My name is Lyndon, I'm studying artificial intelligence and I'm interested in the design of efficient systems for virtuous outcomes. I'm Josh, I'm studying psychology and I'm interested in the generation of progress that alleviates suffering in the world. We believe in the power of knowledge and the role it plays in creating a better world. We hope you enjoy the show. Enough. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> I think we'll be able to figure it out anyway. That's fine. Just leave that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome back, listeners. Um, back for another episode. Welcome back. We're here with uh, what's his name? Hot and Dondrous is his name. And uh, yes, we're back. Don, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been a good week. Thank you, Joshua. Probably for if for nothing else, for simply knowing that I had a long weekend coming up. So that's sort of like short weeks are good because they're short, yeah. but they're also good because you know there's a long weekend at the end of them. So it's one of those very like, positive feedback loop things. It's like the whole month of December, just some exciting anticipation leading up to. Yeah, I was talking to someone about that this week actually. Just started riffing on how much I love Christmas and just... They're like, oh, you're getting actually like <laughs> yeah. pretty amped up here. It's like you're you're above like yeah. baseline arousal. Like, yeah, Christmas is awesome. Just like that whole time of year, it's so good. Other people are so much nicer, and that like that makes your life yeah. better. And again, all these positive flowing effects, like you mentioned. And plus, your nan and pa put on a feast. Well, nan, <laughs> pa sits and nan puts on a feast, and Linda eats. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you really should try come up if you can. Um, yeah, we say that definitely. every year, but yeah, it's... We went up, we went up that time. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but it, uh, yeah, I love it all. Like the whole, I typically end up sleeping in the laundry because I don't bring a partner up. Like all the people with partners <laughs> get rooms. Like there's cousins camping on the lawn. Every, like, and everyone always sleeps in the same section of the house. So hmm. like... My cousin cool. Lockie and his brother Brady and like their girlfriends, they're like, you know, behind the couch in the lounge room. That's where they lay their swag. And it's just like, that's not even a bedroom, but it's like Lockie mm. will rock up Christmas day, the day before boxing day, whatever, and drag his stuff to behind the couch. Like it's the bedroom he always knew he was going <laughs> to. I love it. You should just do a last minute, like um, last minute hunt on Hinge or Tinder for a mate. No, that's... That's like my favorite part of the world. There's no way I'm just, yeah. as, as a troll, going to bring some troll. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut it out. Time to save that. Um, uh, what I was going to ask is, do you, do you get into the football? or uh, Probably the short answer is no. Um, I'm certainly interested in football. Um, I think I've lost a lot more interest in it with the whole COVID sort of situation. Um, but also like probably a large part of that I think was linked to Geordie as well. Geordie was the most like mm. avid sports person in our family. Wanted to talk about it flat out. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just not as much of a prominent theme in our lives anymore. Yeah. I yeah. presume you didn't watch it. No. Nah, yeah. You know, I'm so, <clears throat> so far removed from that. I, 
on this is not overstating it. I don't even know like where and when the season is. I didn't know it was grand final until probably like oh, well, obviously you know we were talking about grand final day, but yeah, I have no conception of. I know when the season roughly is because I played it for many years, but it's not like oh it's the start of the season. So I'm just like oh oh is it finals or is it grand final slash I just I just don't really care. No, I'm yeah probably quite there with you. Um, I didn't really watch any of the game last night. Just watched the new episodes of Rick and Morty. It's like check the score occasionally, um, mm. and it's funny. It's it's one of those things that so much of the country is oriented around. Obviously, especially Victoria. Yeah. Um, but one of those things that you don't you don't get a sense for how just kind of like crazy and all-consuming it is until you're outside of it. Yeah, yeah. I used to, maybe like a year or two ago, because um, I haven't really cared for like six years ever since I stopped playing. But I used to get a little bit concerned or self-conscious or nervous about like not being up with it because again like small talk in Australia that's largely what a lot of people talk about and that's what connects a lot of people uh and yeah I used to get a little bit like nervous and self-conscious about not knowing what was going on because I just couldn't just have that um that small talk conversation with anyone but um, yeah, again, along along with the general trend of other things, I just stopped giving a fuck about that. <laughs> no, I can definitely relate to that. Um, when I was, yeah, when I was working, um, just like in the car park at Lake Mountain, I'd be standing out in the snow, sleet, rain, whatever, for like eight hours with the half a dozen blokes around you just parking cars. I'd always felt kind of compelled to know what the score had been from the mm. night before. Um, just that kind of stuff because it's it's obviously going to bubble up and be a conversation throughout the day. So you kind of, yeah, you want to be able mm. to engage in that kind of stuff. Funny little anecdote. When I was volunteering for AFL Victoria back in the day, I was volunteering at a football match and I met this girl who was also volunteering. We were like bringing um, tourists to football games and sort of explaining the game and the rules and stuff. And that was the volunteer organization and that was what we did. And she was saying how she dropped this sort of interesting little, I guess, like statistic or truism or phenomenon that in most countries, the general chit chat is centered around like politics, sex and weather. And in Australia, it's centered around sex, weather and sports. And that was like some interesting observation, I guess, around, you know, how good we have it here politically. Um versus other countries and yeah and i guess just where like the focus is for australia and it says something about our identity i guess yeah yeah no i think that is um an interesting little social commentary on australian culture um it yeah i get like and it's again one of those somewhat self-perpetuating things australia mm. markets itself as like sporting capital of the world and the MCG is considered one of the meccas of sport and mm. we do we do try and draw people into that culture you know if they've sort of um, relocated from a foreign country then we sort of push football onto them or cricket or basketball yeah. I mean, our basketball is very high quality down here but 
Shout out to Bogut. Um, yeah, but the, and there is also this tinge of like not anti-politicization, but this sort of laissez-faire politic of the community of like, in, oh, in every other culture, they care so much about politics and that's what they talk about. Um, and I guess like probably rightly so because it really matters. However, I think in Australia, like linked to our identity is this probably bar right now, this laissez-faire, don't really care about the politics, don't really care to talk about it, it doesn't really matter, <clears throat> it'll take care of itself. Um, yeah, I think that is largely a part of like the Australian identity, although, however, I could see that really shifting now. Yeah, big agreement with you here. It is... I, I'm, I'm in two minds about this. So, where I think there's a common trend here with other countries, and I'm thinking sort of still other westernized-ish countries, um, there is somewhat of a celebration of um, like non-effort, non-caring, non-education that kind of thing. And I think probably maybe there's strong parallels in, I think, both England and America, you know, probably Ireland and all other kind of spin-off countries. Um, Yeah. But that sort of, yeah, why try? Don't try to be anything. It's cooler to be ignorant, that kind of idea. And I think that that is common across other, as I said, other countries. But there is possibly a special brand of Australian um, non, non-interest non um, and non-sort of connectedness with the political realm, as you said, because we have it so good. I think Americans, even if they're sort of not interested in politics in general, they're still, from a social signalling perspective, I think more cur- encouraged to still just represent in some way their belief system and how that sort of relates to politics. They might not have a, you know, they might not be interested in politics, but they're Mm. still somewhat um, benefited by portraying themselves as a conservative, if that, yeah, in the social perspective, I mean, not a social conservative, but a conservative (laughs) in a social setting. Yes, that makes sense. So I think it's due to, like the volume, it's probably due to a, a scale issue of America having close to 400 million people, Australia having 25 coming on, yeah, about 25 million people, that these groupings become a little bit more important. And like we've spoken about, the political tribe becomes some sort of identity that it it um, it's more contributive to someone's identity rather than it is in Australia perhaps just because of the scaling issue. Like, there are so many more people over there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe that is a factor. But but there is, for, for sure, this phenomenon of just not needing to identify as much in political parties as an Australian as opposed to American. Yeah, I, again, agree. And I think this... Um this was one of the subsequent points that I was kind of, kind of trying to spin off your video that you made that you posted on Instagram, which 
as I said, I really liked and thought you did a good job. Um, but I was somewhat probably criticizing and you weren't, as I said, I was spinning it off. I'm usually, I'll jump at my shot to criticize a little bit. Um, mm. the amount of people that have sort of now spoken up strongly with political views without having really any connection or interest in the trends that were already in play and the forces that were already in motion and they'd paid no attention to that until they started stepping on this person's particular toes. And it's like, oh, now that these things are infecting me, I'm going to speak up and give my opinions and insights. Though, again, with sort of complete disregard for what was going on previously and every little minute variable that had nudged us in this direction. So... Like a bandwagoning sort of effect? Is that what you were seeing? Oh, sorry. Not, no, not so much a bandwagoning effect. Just that... Like, I think if you want to offer somewhat insightful criticisms or perspectives on the current moment, you need, mm. you need to have been paying attention for more than just the current moment. Right. I think there's a lot of people just who are kind of just like woken up and then gone out in a rage and like oh this is wrong and that's bad and we should be doing this and it's like well the reason we can't do that is because of this thing that we did 15 years ago to prevent x y and z from happening and now just because um you know j k and m are happening doesn't mean you know we've completely butchered things getting to this point like we've navigated reality the way that we can we've avoided a ton of dreadful futures like, let's just be careful about what's going on now. Yeah, and shout out for the <laughs> shout out to the the alphabet for being such a versatile tool <laughs> for analogies, symbols. Like that's all. Yeah, yeah. That's that's probably a little bit more of the math and the the programming coming out in me. Um, what did I say? J K and M. What is it? Yeah. A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. <laughs> yeah, skip, just skipped L altogether. What a, what, a, uh, what a skill it would be to be able to insert yourself into any part of the alphabet and be able to do a sequence uh, rather than having to start from the yes, start. Yes, I've thought about this before. Um, and I have to, because I have to do this with the months. People like, oh, the ninth yeah, yeah, month. Same. I'm like, and I'm January, like, February, uh, month, January, and February. Count on my hands. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? You don't know the months? Like a four-year-old. Yeah. How much time did you dedicate to learning the months? Just start from the start. Like, <laughs> yeah. who cares? Or just like go to your go to your birthday as the focal point, and then back and forth from there. Yeah, that's exactly. Like, and I've said that to people before. I was like, I'm a February baby. Like, I've I've yeah. I tuned out after oh, the second yeah. month. Yeah. I know December's yeah, the twelfth. Yeah, yeah. I know September <laughs> is either the ninth or the eleventh. Because it's, you know, nine yeah. eleven. But America's got it backwards, yeah. so <laughs> it's either or it's one of them. Um yeah, so I get what you were saying. You were speaking to the recency effect as you did write in your in your little post as well. Um which yeah, I, I do see that playing out as well. Um again, I think like not to like re relay the whole thing again, but I think well for one it's so hard to speak about things you can't see, but they're undoubtedly there. <laughs> so it's like just this again, it's like this unfalsifiable claim of an unknown unknown or maybe like a known unknown but it's like well how do you know um but i guess my 
my my thought process behind that would be just like looking at looking at patterns and looking at history of okay well things like this tend to have some sort of um quote unquote invisible hand or invisible tyrannical hands um and I, I i dare say that is probably the case um and yeah like linked to that like you said is not only what people can see like visually but the past that people are perhaps like choosing not to see or just not really like making themselves aware of um and yeah of it, like this all sounds so just like fluffy and up in the air uh, because again, it's really hard to just put your finger on what it, what is, what it is. But I guess the central thrust of it is just that it's not like the trunk. It's like it's an elephant. There are other parts to it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, there's not not too much more I can add. I agree with both your analysis that there's more going on than meets the eye, and your subsequent point that it's difficult to get people to realize that or to think that. Um, yeah, I think certainly some people are open to it, but it just depends on how much someone's current belief system benefits them, I think. You know, it's like if they've latched onto this idea that this particular figurehead that you're seeing on the news is the cause of all their issues and all their friends and close family members believe that, then, yeah, I think they're probably going to be pretty unwilling to look at it from a different perspective yeah i've been reading friends the wall this week um his book the primatologist and the atheist yeah friends the world the primatologist like phenomenal i haven't really um well this is the first book of his that i've read but other than just reading him as references in other books yeah, i haven't really delved too much into any of his stuff but i've really like been enjoying this book the bonobo, the bonobo and the atheist because his central mission in that is to figure out the underpinnings of morality and like you brought up belief systems which is why it sort of sparked this um thought in me because he's talking a lot about the yeah again like the blend or the dichotomies quote-unquote between religion um and science and just these ideas around or the idea that they're kind of just both belief systems um you know that uh i guess common rebuttal you'll hear against science that it's a belief system of its own i think like the correct way to rebut that would be like that's just science done wrong or like misappropriating science for wrong purposes or something or other uh but yeah i think the really cool thing about Friends the Wall is he's walking that sort of fine line along with people like Brett Weinstein and Douglas Murray of the science religion and searching for the utility without sort of buying into the dogmatic side of science, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I I would need to read it to get a better idea of where he's coming from. I don't... Um, yeah, I know I'm not disagreeing with anything you really said here, but I, I don't find the, the argument that science is just a belief system in itself very compelling. I don't think it's a 
misappropriation or misrepresentation of science. I think it's just, um, it's pointing to a trivial similarity between two things. Like, yeah, science Mm. is a belief system. That's not a criticism of it. Not like that's not Mm. damning evidence. Mm. The, the point of science is obviously that believing these things maps onto objective real world you know consequences and outcomes and we can do things like land a man on the moon um give me one second um let, Were you gonna get yeah i was um none sorry no it wasn't none, none. um Yeah, like landing a man on the moon is always just a very cliche example, but it's like we can prolong life. We can, um, yeah, do all kinds of cool things. And that's, I think I referenced this um, this piece uh, in, either our convers- in both our conversation with Brian and possibly last week as well. And I, th- I think this is where it appears in the fallacy of the grey. But just like yeah. treating things as comparable just because they share some some similar property and i think that's like yes there's a frame that wraps science and religion they they are both belief systems but they are worlds apart within that frame yeah yeah so it's like well yes they may both rely on say, old texts that were written by people that we've never met. Um, They both may rely on things that aren't available to us visually, you know, like, say, like subatomic atoms versus um, a a god in the sky. There are similarities along the way. However, the distinct difference that science can actually explain phenomena and sometimes predict it and map onto reality, like you said, versus religion that can't, that is like disproportionately, um, you know, that's a disproportionate difference. It's like all those little things, like yes, one point for each side, but then when you add that part in, the map and territory, it's like, okay, well, that's 100 points. Yeah. Um, And I think... Like, yeah, possibly there was actually some truth, just to go back to your point, that it's a misrepresentation of science to to compare them. Um, so, for example, like, I, pro- I probably have a very favourable view of science when we're saying these things, but when... Hot take, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I say science, I'm not saying the extremely you know, academic, publish or perish, um, lots of data mining, that kind of stuff that's going on currently, as we've spoken about. There's a lot of, obviously, implicit um, ideas shared between us currently. Um, I'm thinking more in terms of science is publicly verifiable knowledge. Like, theoretically, you could, you know, read a research paper and verify at least like proof of concept level ideas that it contains. You know, you might not have mm. a large hadron, com- you know, collider that you can just build in your backyard, but if theoretical physics or particle physics is built upon, say, this idea and this idea, and 
at some level you can conduct little physics experiments within your own home and go, oh, okay, actually this little foundation that this entire field is built upon, I can verify for myself. You can do experiments with gravity. You can do um, chemistry experiments where you do the whole like bicarb soda and vinegar and like bubble things up. Like all the stuff we were shown in school were little proof of concepts that, hey, all these weird and quirky things that you're going to hear about quantum mechanics and, you know, astronomy when you're older, like there is utility and truth behind them. Yeah, so I think, um, again, like coming back to symbols and intermediaries and language and words. Sorry to get evangelical on you there for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's one of... I did want to talk about Hitch today, um, Christopher Hitchens a little bit, um, speaking of that. But yeah, coming back to language and symbols, your idea of science is perhaps not what a lot of other people would think of science and I think that, again, like every belief that we hold is in our minds correct. I think that the way that we probably think about science is the right way to think about it. Where, yeah, I don't know, like yourself, I, I sort of think of science as like a, a, a social process rather than lab code experiments. Like you're getting it. It's a, it's a process of falsifying hypotheses and you know, testing, like testing realities or like things that you think are realities, um, looking at uh, what's the, not counter-narrative, but looking at... Counterfactual. Counterfactuals. That was synced up. We got it that time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like considering counterfactuals, things like that. I think it's largely a social process of, uh, yeah, approximating truth. And I think it would probably help a lot of people to take on that definition and that would sort of liberate science from a lot of the a lot of the misplaced ills against it i suspect yeah i think this um this defense of science that you're currently giving is something that's generally true of everything and i think this is actually a valid defense of religion as well where if you zoom in too much on anything, it has flaws, cracks, and, you know, bits that you'd rather take out. You, know, you zoom in on the, you know, the pedophilia stuff on the Catholic Church, then, well, of course, that's going to, that, that is repulsive. Not it's going to seem repulsive, that is repulsive. But, like, if you zoom out and look at the, you know, Christianity as a whole, that has more favorable sort of, valence and then if you just zoom out religion has probably even a more positive just valence in itself like it's i'm not saying that you know it's completely defensible i still think you know overall religion yeah it's probably hindering us more than it's helping us currently i'm not sure but the point i'm getting at it's one of the primary questions or probably the primary question is, what is the right level of abstraction to look at this from? Don't start determining whether something is good or bad unless you've first asked, am I viewing this from the right vantage point? 
clip it, quote it, and post on Instagram. That was very articulate. Oh, thank you. Well done. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up because often we speak about abstractions and their predisposition to be negatively utilized. And then this is kind of a flip side of that coin where if you abstract away enough, sometimes it's it's predisposed to be positively utilized instead. Um, a Again, in this book, that relates... A quote, sorry, that was the word. That relates to what you were just saying by Nietzsche. Um, he warned that the emergence of something is never to be confused with its acquired purposes. And this is a quote. Anything in existence having somehow come about is continually interpreted anew, requisitioned anew, transformed and redirected to a new purpose. Um, So it's kind of like the Popperian quote, but for, I guess, like entities and ideas. Yep, I like it. Um, And I'll just link in something else with what you were saying before about science as a social process. It, I think it's completely true as well of politics. You know, like politics isn't just writing yeah. legislation in a room with a dozen people. It's yeah. every other sort of trickle-on interaction and occurrence from there. It's the, you know, yes... It's the the news reports and the things that we as kids thought was like, oh, politics is boring. Like that seven minute segment on ABC News bored the crap out of me. Therefore, politics is boring. Yeah. But it's you know it's the conversations over the dinner table. It's the the pros and cons in your social media feed. It's the votes. It's the campaigns. It's it's all of that, and in a fingers crossed kind of sense, and thankfully in Australia this is mostly true, it's the positive outcomes of all of those things. The net positive outcomes Mm. and the general trending towards progress. Yeah, definitely. Um, Shout out to, I think it was maybe episode like four or something, the the blueprint of political rhetoric. I don't remember exactly what number, but I think we ended up defining politics as just like how do we live together as a society and sort of all encompassing that um and also yeah abc <laughs> abc's just i've i've i tried watching um what's their monday night show again uh q a yeah i tried I, I went on a little q a tangent probably like two years ago was enjoying it for a little bit but then it just oh like ultra virtue signally ultra like liberal left like almost the caricature of everything that's sort of going wrong in the media and leftism media is encapsulated in like Q&A ABC cringe worthy <laughs> yeah I remember watching the the Q&A episode after the whole Black Lives Matter thing just kicked off and the, it w- oh, was atrocious viewing and I don't think it did any favours for Dude. The victims of this situation, like the the people that you're trying to give a voice to, I was like, oh man, you are just making them look horrible in however many Australians are watching this mind. Did we speak about this when it happened? Because I had the exact same experience. Like 
it was the episode after the George Floyd where they were sort of addressing it, quote unquote. And <clears throat> my feeling was here they had this great opportunity to address a serious issue that like is there, there is an issue there. Um, however you want to look at it, there is something there to look at and to be talked about and to be acted upon. They had this great opportunity to do that and then they get on an actor, I think two Aboriginal actors, to like talk to the Australian public p- about the political problem of racism in Australia. It's like, like, what are you doing? Like, you have this beautiful opportunity to address something like the social valence in the zeitgeist is pushing everyone's attention towards this issue and you've really just like thrown it away not only wasted it but like done something that's uh like antithetical to the cause of like you said for indigenous people in australia because as you know and as we speak about like weak arguments are just uh, yeah, they like created their own straw man for their own side. It's like then the conservative types and say the slightly right-leaning types will look at people like that and be like, oh, that's your argument and just easily be able to wave them off. Whereas if they had have got someone good on, like Jacinta Price, um, that actually can speak quite moderately and informed about these things, it would have done a world of good. So that yeah, that was really like, pretty heartbreaking to see that um yeah hated it to go back to another point that you mentioned or i i don't even know at this point we both agree with (laughs) (laughs) um in that sort of who knows your video and my follow-up post about incentives it's like the the people leading the charge at the abc they're not benefited by making that issue go away and speaking moderately the more inflammatory kind of stuff that can go on and particularly the ABC's brand is, we'll say, inflammatory things that masquerade as socially positive, useful things. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you get what I'm getting so, at. So, yeah, absolutely. So, what do you think then, to go back to him, of Christopher Hitchens and like that sort of, um, I guess, like that sort of demeanor and that rhetoric? Because one could maybe say that he is the conservative style of that um you know that's that's sort of my line of thinking and throwing the question out there um because yeah you know obviously like beautifully articulate very entertaining well thought uh individual but yeah again like his demeanor is quite different to yours and pretty much my own as well um but yeah i don't know what do you make of a a slightly more right-leaning version of that hitch. Um, uh, well, I'd kind of disagree that hitch was right-leaning. Um, oh, interesting. He, he was like classif- classically very progressive and considered himself to be a progressive, considered himself to be a communist for a lot of years, and then eventually yeah. changed his tune on that. Yeah. Um, you know, um, extremely outspoken atheist, which is typically aligned with progressive ideals. Um, yeah, regardless of like whether we need to classify him, because it's always, you know, um, fraught with yeah. 
danger anyway. Anti-label club here. <laughs> uh, but in general, I'm a massive fan of of Hitch, as you know. Um, I think the Q&A episode he does is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite pieces of yeah. viewing. So um, he's not... He is not um, the perfect person. And there's probably, you know, things that he's said or done where he has also been intentionally inflammatory um, rather than just purely trying to speak um, the truth. But, yeah, overall, I think for someone who is... There needs to be some kind of like measurement where the ratio of how much good you've done in comparison to, you know, how much you are hated. I, I think he, he scores really highly on that metric. And I think someone like Jordan Peterson is also quite high on that metric. Both have done a lot of good, I believe, um, but are yeah, tremendously hated by differing parties. So it's taking like a utilitarian view of it. It's like even, but but I guess your point would be that he's just wrongly hated. Um. Well, yeah, possibly. Um. Like for example, in that Q and A episode, I think the one thing that might be the hardest viewing um if you haven't seen it before i think particularly if you're female um is when he's speaking directly with um i think it's the the muslim female um who's disagreeing she's disagreeing with his ideas obviously about religion and um i think she says something he uh correct me if I'm wrong here and I'm sort of just trying to remember as we go. Mm. Hitchens is criticizing Islam and how dangerous it has made, say, Middle Eastern countries. And this um young woman in the crowd basically says, you know, like, my home country is safe, it's fine, women women are respected <laughs> and he calls her bluff like there. Yeah. And it's it's pretty brutal, but he's like, You are disrespecting yeah. all the women in your home country who are not safe by you sitting here and saying that they are. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's, it's a little bit cringeworthy, but you can't mm. attach that intuition to whether it's the right or the wrong thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> I remember it vividly. Um, again, it's great viewing, hard viewing, but great viewing. And again, I think, like due to his intention there he's again just trying to follow the truth because for people if you go back and watch the video he calls her out on it and then she actually does she recedes and she's like oh well yeah you know this this and that and he's sort of has his gotcha moment um but it was just this process of just like holding her feet to the fire and eventually she gets burnt a little bit can i read one of my favorite quotes like ever please please we'll see how this goes because i think i've noted on the podcast before but i can't read out loud very well <laughs> it's something i really struggle with okay so this is um hitchens in letters to a young contrarian beware the irrational however seductive 
shun the transcendent and all who invite you to subordinate or annihilate yourself. Distrust compassion. Prefer dignity for yourself and others. Don't be afraid to be thought arrogant or selfish. Picture all experts as if they were mammals. Never be a spectator of unfairness or stupidity. Seek out argument and disputation for their own sake. The grave will supply you plenty of time for silence. Suspect your own motives and all excuses. Do not live for others any more than you would expect others to live for you. Oh, Hitch. Who would you bring... Would you bring back, Hitch, if you could bring someone back? Oh, it's... I'd probably... So, I've thought this before. I think Orwell gets the seat at the table. Just... Yeah, that's great. And he would probably bring back Orwell. Yeah, (laughs) like, that's the thing. Like, so much of Hitch has just tried to be a continuation of Orwell's similar sort of behavior with just bigger balls. Yeah, yeah. And all the tools that the 21st century brings kind of thing. But going back to the quote, though, like that, I that captures just so much of, like it starts yeah. off with like, beware the irrational, however seductive, shun the transcend, transcendent. Like, and that's kind of relating to the, you know, the atheistic religious um, parts of his beliefs. You know, then he then he tunes into um, evolution a bit and picture all experts as if they were mammals. Then he touches on, um, you know, the excessive sort of totalitarian regimes when he goes down to don't expect others to live for you um, any more than you would mm. for them. And there's just like, he just sweeps across, across so many philosophical and political ideas. And I... I I love this bit in particular and yeah, I remember when I came across that and it really gave um, voice to the part of me that I think I'd been grappling with for a long time and it's the never be a spectator of unfairness or stupidity. Yeah. And say more about that. Well, I think you know, like you obviously knew me, I think when this part of me was really starting to come online and and come to terms with itself like previously i there'd been a lot of things that i've say disagreed with in my life um you know just even through school like watching kids treat other kids and i was kind of like oh i think that's wrong and sometimes i would speak up sometimes i wouldn't um and i've certainly been a perpetrator of many wrong behaviors as well like i wouldn't not trying to suggest that i haven't yeah Um, and then, you know, maybe from like 15 to 20 odd, I sort of was like, oh, I want to be a little bit better of who I am, but it's not my job to tell others how they should or shouldn't be in that completely kind of pacifist approach. And then when I read letters to a young contrarian and like, but even that sort of felt, it didn't quite sit right. I was like, hang on, is this the Mm. right way to be? Um, and then when I read, yeah, as I said, letters to a young contrarian and that line in particular, never be a spectator of unfairness or stupidity. I was like, yeah, that actually is the right moral stance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's phenomenal. I've been thinking about this recently as well about 
passive immorality, and like you alluded to, it's this stance of, well, doing nothing is kind of an immoral behavior. Like being the, the um, bystander is, you know, you're, you're kind of a part of the problem. This does, like this, like this is uh, careful territory to go down because this is the foundation of this anti-racist movement um, and again, without like putting a value judgment on it, I don't, I don't know what the right way to think about that is. Um, but I guess like going back to what I was, what motivated that little post that I did, that was kind of my point there is like, uh, you know, I think it, it makes a bit of sense to be participating in this in whatever way that I can. Um, and yeah, I think there, there is this is sort of a a new like intellectual or theoretical mountain to climb of like what is the right level of moral activeness that one needs to have and like when does inaction become immoral yeah so i think that's so I think that's the wrong question to ask. Um, what I think we... Where I think we start is... Um, and I think this, these are the terms given. It's like guilt by omission and guilt by commission. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah, basically like... In a, from a sort of a consequentialist framework, not pulling five people off the train tracks is the same and you could have is the same as pushing five people onto the train tracks. And I would say, I think that's actually fine reasoning. Like in say behave by Sapolsky, he goes into a ton of like little intricacies about these things among other books. Um, but I think as a general axiom that that's pretty close to the top of my moral reasoning at least and then what you do, I think, is you just rank basically behaviors on um, somewhat from like an expected utility standpoint. It's just like your ability to influence change versus the importance of influencing change. Say so like if, you know, there's some, some social issue that you're very well positioned to act on, but it's not much, um, it's not that important then that might wait as well or just as important to act on as some extremely important social issue that you're not as well positioned to act on. But it's like through some effort, you could influence this highly important outcome. So I think mm. you just have to do that calculus. And it's not not a question of what amount of inactivity is correct or incorrect it's just both action and inaction can both mm. be held morally accountable and therefore it's like we can just mm. scratch that off the table like that cancels on both yeah. sides of the equation and then we go yeah ability to influence change and importance of influencing change yeah, so the answer, the answer to whatever the dilemma may be largely lies in the context. Like, it's, it's not going to be inherently immoral not to act 
unless there are unless the environment um, unless the environment makes it so unless you like you said unless you have the ability to do so um, and it's it's an important thing to do so um, and yeah that makes a lot of sense because and did you mention yeah I guess your ability to do so because like what the influence that you the influence that your actions will have like for example again to the anti-racist idea um something like posting a black square the the influence of that is largely questionable um versus yeah again maybe something like the automated donating very clear influence and clear outcomes um so yeah i guess that that idea does make a lot of sense that it's just about the context um in which the passive the passivity um, is immoral or not. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much true. I think what you effectively, what you should be doing, like your behavior would just be if you take, if you somehow mapped out all moral and social issues that are going on currently, you did the, um, and you worked out, you know, the product of, as I said, your ability to influence them versus their social importance, like one multiplied by the other, that gives you some kind of score, then you just rank order them, you should be behaving in some way that you're continuously addressing the most important things at the top of that list, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, so maybe like a very deep question, but like where do you sit on the, you know, the can't Hume sort of debate with morality? Do you think morality is arrived at by process of careful reasoning or do you think morality is an afterthought stacked on top of emotions? Um, I think I... I don't know because I haven't necessarily read... I haven't read that actually that much philosophy for someone who is relatively philosophical, um, just as a side point. Yeah, that's just... let's highlight that for one real quick second like i think about this kind of often when like you know what are your interests or what do you think about or whatever and i was like or like even the podcast is at the moment called philosophy AU. it's like yes philosophy is largely floating around my head but then it's like oh what philosophy what actual philosophers have you really read it's like oh um I mean, I probably like tend to read a little bit more philosophy than you, but even still, like it's hard to say that I've really like read the the figureheads in philosophy. But yeah, again, I I tend to read like the the condensed modern versions. But yeah, yeah, it's just I feel though. I think well, my own behaviour isn't necessarily a pushback on, but I I have tried to avoid that whole backwards-facing philosophy. It's like, oh, let me tell you what, you know, Archimedes said or Aristotle said or whoever and be like, oh, cool. And, yeah, like, I'm much more interested in the, what's become probably very nerdy um, and somewhat Mm -hmm. arisen with, like, internet culture, but the kind of, you know, Nick Bostrom, Toby Ord, future-oriented kind of philosophy. Yeah, well, I just think that your 
again, like you're philosophizing, not just studying philosophers. Like we are hopefully philosophizing. We are doing the verb. We're acting it. Yeah, I think, and I wasn't trying to distinguish between you and I there. I think we, you know, we both no, no, do. No, no. I think it's just, and, and it relates to your point about, um, you said last week, about if you're not actually trying to implement these ideas, they're sort of just an art form yeah. that you're yeah. just engaging with for some kind of like ascetic pleasure. It's like, oh, you want to sit there and talk with friends about Freud or about, you know, as I said, Aristotle or Plato. But if you're not actually using philosophy as some kind of way of navigating life and directing, you know, the world, then... Yeah, they're different things. Anyway. Yeah, they're like um, they're like communicative ornaments, basically, to say Kant and Hume. And like, and again, like I, I think it's a good idea to have an understanding of what these people thought, but that's about the extent of it. Like we've said many a time, like understand what Kant's central ideas were, but don't waste six months trying to read critique, his critique of pure reason. And I think um, in some regards as well, like there's, there's two factors here. So one, the, you know, there's probably some value in reading Kant because like, yes, he said one or two say really important things that were massively impactful and shaped modern thought. So then you go, oh, okay, he said these one or two things. That's some kind of like, I can do some kind of Bayesian update that maybe he was a slightly better thinker around some of these topics than other people. You do some kind of filtering mechanism. You've got 15 books that you could possibly read. You give some additional weight to Kant's because, you know, he's said some decent things. That's very just skimming the surface. But it's like if there's someone more modern, more relevant, more thoughtful to read, read it. Yeah. 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 Um, Be- because, because they would have read Kant, understood it. And then add it on top. Possibly. Like, in a way that we can yeah, understand. Yeah, that, well. like, that's not a given. There's been plenty of people mm-hmm. who I think have given worse accounts of previous ideas. Like, it's not a guaranteed that we now understand them or can yeah. build upon them. But yeah. if you, you know, you dedicate the 10, 10% of your time to finding the right book to read and then the rest of the 90% time to actually reading it, you should be able to filter out the old books and the new books that aren't good and find, yeah, as I said, the new good books that have built upon old ideas. Ultra learning process. Is indeed. Um, the meta learning stage. Yes. Shout out to meta. To answer your question, <laughs> yes. I yes. I don't know... So this is the reason I started us down this path. I don't know if this is Kantian or Humean or whoever, but I basically fall into the morality is the what's the, there's some some saying it's like ninety percent of morality is the golden rule and the rest percent the rest is commentary or the huh. I, I can't I might, there might Sorry. not be percentages on it, but it it might just be you know morality is essentially the golden rule and the rest is commentary. But that's, I think, the camp that I fall into. And the golden rule is? Treat others how you would like to be treated. In essence, you might have a different version. No, no, yeah, it was just to get it out there. 
because um, people aren't in our heads as much as we would like to think. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really, like, I've been thinking about it a lot. I haven't really been, that hasn't come into my mind, to be honest, um, the golden rule. Um, I guess what I would think it's, again, I think it's just a blend. Like, so what I think is the case, I think that, I think that, like, Hume and Jonathan Haidt are ultimately right. Like, I think that intuition and emotion, um, they ultimately drive, like, what we do. And then, like, as you know, the argument is just, like, post hoc rationalization after that. I think that is largely the case. However, I don't think that's the whole story. I do think there is, like, capacity for us to reason towards better behaviors. And I do think that, like, again, like, bridging this sort of, like, this is-ought thing of, uh, I guess, like, um, the way things are can't determine the way things should be or ought to be. Um, I think that science can actually provide a bit of a guidance towards like the proper moral behavior. Um, so anyway, long story short, I think it's basically a blend. I think that most of mor- <laughs> what is smiling at. <laughs> so, so we're going to decide that a perceived dichotomy shouldn't actually be dichotomous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically, that's where that's where I'm landing on most stuff. Um, but yeah, I do think there is like the capacity to reason towards moral behaviors, and that science can be a tool towards that. And like, um, the implicit, uh, I guess, the implicit knowledge or the implicit arguments that I'm sort of rebutting are the arguments of science can't determine what values are. Um, that's sort of maybe what I'm what I'm addressing that I should be making explicit so yeah i think science can help determine what we ought to value and i think like the um like the animal liberation movement is a perfect example of that um women's rights um whatever racial rights are the perfect example of that um so i think yeah i think there is a capacity for science to inform moral behavior but uh, yeah i do also see that a lot of moral behavior um is like at bedrock just kind of intuition and feeling um yeah so anyway a lot of ramblings but i guess i don't fall in either camps surprise surprise i think it's a blend (laughs) okay so i've got three thoughts here and i'm going to try and remember them all the first is i agree and i think this comes back to I think this is a real useful frame of just always coming back to cognitive psychology because like ultimately like that is the, that's where perception meets reality. That just Mm. people talk about perception, perception is reality. And I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's like at, you know, the location at the locus of the mind, like where we as an individual sit as an I perception and reality meet and become some amalgamation Mm. of both. They become one. Um, And that's why I think cognitive psychology and other related disciplines are are really important. And for example, it's like there's 
often the debate of whether we are these just purely intuitive creatures or these highly analytical, reason-driven ones. And the thing is, we're a mix of both. We have intuitions. Those intuitions are, say, right 60% of the time, but they're wrong a lot. Um, When other times we need to reason to get the right answer, however, we rely on intuition to prompt us and say, hey, this is a situation when you should actually... Um, reason about this thing you know like it's it's this bleeding of both into one where it's it's not clear however um, there's some phenomenal examples of um, yeah both intuition and analytical reasoning being the right sort of use case for that situation anyway that's I think I think yeah morality as you said proceeds in a very similar way it's not necessarily one or the other there are some cases when we should think logically and reason about mm. them a lot of times there's a natural inst- and natural instincts are going to be decent but not perfect and I think we should always be pushing more towards perfect and then the more explicit we make some reasoning processes and the more hashed out they become, the more ingrained into our intuition they then become. Sort of that information gets compressed and then stored beneath the surface and frees itself up for more reasoning power to be applied to other things. Hmm. Thoughts? Sorry. Cool. As like, yeah, probably a lot of that's just bashed hmm. out and you understand, but... Yeah, there's just a massive parallel. Mm. Like system one and two, I think, can basically be applied applied to Kantian versus Humean reasoning or moral reasoning. Yeah, I think um, something that I've been dealing with is like how much of like evolutionary psychology do we take on board, and like how that how much that should influence behavior um, or how we see the world because we just want to be really careful of this baby bath bathwater baby in the bathwater situation because historically there are these situations where um, where things like this have been wielded is that the right term wielded yeah things like this have been wielded for like really atrocious behaviors um, and I'm speaking to eugenics here where uh there was thought to be these biological reasons for non-white people or black people and others to be um like biologically inferior to white people and that was eugenics um and i'm just quite weary that uh that potentially like a lot of this evolutionary psychology thought could be wielded for negative behaviors and that's not a mock on evolutionary psychology that's a mock on people wielding it, the people wielding it for these bad behaviours. As you know, big fan of Evo Psych, um, going down a bit of a tangent on it at the moment, but that is like a continuous current in the back of my head. It's like, and the reason that I'm cautious of it is because it feels so good when I'm reading it. (laughs) I'm reading it and it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like this is giving me a lot of answers. And then that sort of meta-awareness kicks in. It's like, oh, hang on. Like, you better be careful about, like, just taking these thoughts on board. Um, because, yeah, 
simple answers are you got to be cautious with them, etc. Um, so I'm just quite aware of like what out of the like how like separating the wheat from the chaff in the Evo Psych field. Yeah, I I'm big on this because um, there is a massive tension there. That's one I think about a lot. There's like <laughs> the knowledge acquisition process is not an easy one. Like, not if you're at all inclined to sort of introspective or recursive thoughts, but because yes. the the amount of pleasure you gain from something is is a signal you should be wary of it. However, something that's extremely parallel to that line, or like extremely, or like very closely related to that line, but slightly different, is you know knowledge should explain the world like your your beliefs yeah, should have yeah. explanatory power so reading something and yeah. going oh this explains this explains some things i should be careful like or my mind is immediately yeah. applying this to things and it's making sense hmm. that's something to be wary of but doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong that's again it's a calibration yeah. problem does this explain too much does it explain too little yeah um the reason I'm like holding this book here is because I just remember this passage from like one and where I think we're at, I think we're at dot point one point one here because we're still, <laughs> we're still in the, the first point of my original three points. <laughs> um, so we're at one point A here, but um, yeah. so this, the book is conscious by Annika Harris, um, Sam Harris's wife. And what I was going to say is, Big, big crush on her, like, unsurprisingly. Um, Preaching to the choir. <laughs> like, physically attractive, fine. Don't even care. <laughs> the thing that made me most attractive to her, attracted to her, was listening to the podcast with Sam, and she's just, like, a mixture of silent and cute, giggling, and then roasting yeah. Sam. I was like, yeah. Oh, Damn. <laughs> yeah. She's got that real like cutesy vibe about her, that real Susan Kane vibe. Yeah. Really thoughtful, smart, um, beautiful. But that yeah. was just like in general, super lovely to listen to as a couple as well. Like that was something where I walked away from it was like, oh man, I, like some faith in love has been restored. That that was cool mm. to listen to. Be a fly on the wall. Yeah, it's weird hearing Sam Harris giggle like a little girl, though. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's, hey, the power of women. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip some sections, but I've sort of highlighted um, bits that are, should re read relatively coherently. In large part, our intuitions have been shaped by natural selection to quickly provide life-saving information, and these evolved intuitions can still serve us in modern life. But our gut can deceive us as well, and false intuitions can arise in any number of ways, especially in domains of understanding, such as science and philosophy, that evolution could never have foreseen. Consider probability and statistics, where our intuitions are notoriously unreliable. Many of us are nervous flyers, despite the fact that statistically we would need to fly every day for about 55,000 years before being involved in a fatal plane crash. And it's worth mentioning that although people don't commonly have panic attacks when getting behind the wheel in preparation for a trip to the grocery store, one safety on such trips is actually less secure by many orders of magnitude than while flying. Mm. 
An intuition is simply the powerful sense that something is true without our having an awareness or an understanding of the reasons behind this feeling. It may or may not represent something true about the world. Mm, yeah, that's great. Probably just taking three paragraphs to define basically like intuitions versus analytical reasoning there. But I think that's that's an extremely good synopsis, I think, and sort of does highlight that effectively that's where we're at with moral reasoning as well. It's like we have some kind of intuition that this is the right or the wrong thing. But once we become aware of an intuition, I think we should check it via analytical means. And if it checks out, then cool, it can stay there as an intuition. But if it doesn't, we want to be putting in safety measures and being conscientious human beings and trying to better optimize that behavior for whatever values we care about. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, again, so maybe it's not like either or, which I said, but maybe it's not even a blend. Maybe it's like a building phenomenon where the intuition gets us to here, but then we've got to check that intuition with careful reasoning. And then that will sort of guide us in, in, um, the way of, okay, was this intuition correct or was this intuition wrong? Animal rights, okay, this, this intuition looks correct. We ought to care about the suffering of sentient beings. I can suffer, my children can suffer, black people can suffer, women can suffer, animals can probably suffer as well. That ought to guide our behavior there. Um, or where our intuitions are wrong, okay, probably doesn't make too much sense to be fearful of flying plane, getting in on a flight. So it's like a building phenomenon. That's good. Yeah, I think it's um, it's just one of those like yin-yang kind of concepts where, yeah, the, it's very similar to science as well, where you have you have assumptions and then you have the experiments that test and build upon those assumptions, and it's the same in same in mathematics. I think to some degree as well, because people talk about whether math is you know, invented or discovered because there's such a parallel between mm. what we know about the world and the way the world appears to be structured. But um, I think it's Stephen Strogatz who sort of put it like this. is like, we invent the concepts, but then we discover their implications. It's like, we, we mm. get to choose our axioms, but then we don't get to con- choose the conclusions that they reach. It's like, we just reason. And then if it ends up somewhere counterintuitive, and yet our well, logic is sound, then we have to accept that. Mm. So, that's great. yeah, I think morality, like morality is a science, I believe, or, and it definitely should be informed by, you know, quote unquote, actual science. But just as a more mm. process driven thing, I think, yeah, it, it should be guided by the same fundamental principles as, of we accept this is true, Let's see where it leads. Mm. Leads somewhere we, we don't like. Let's maybe check. Did we get one of these axioms just partially wrong? And then just completely continuous iterative process. Mm. Yeah, that's all really good. Some good progress made here. Um, so what else? What have you been reading? Have you been uh, bullish on or bearish on anything this week? Yeah, I'm going to finish my other two points quickly. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> quickly. <laughs> like the first one. <laughs> the second point was, um, I just wanted to expound upon treat others how you would like to be treated, and that was one of the things that caused me confusion about not speaking up, about being mm. a passive kind of moralist, and I was like. Oh, well, you know, I would hate to be told I was wrong. So I'm not going to tell people that they're wrong. But then, then I thought about it more or it's like, I was thinking, sorry, at more at one level, it's like, it doesn't feel nice to be told wrong. So I'm not going to tell someone that they're wrong, even if I disagree with what they're saying or doing. But then when you more, I think, deeply internalize that golden rule of treat others how you would like to be treated and in a more empathetic sense, more effectively put yourself in that person's shoes, you think, hang on, I would actually like to be told that I was wrong. I would like to become aware of these behaviours. That is the long-term, more beneficial thing for me slash this individual. Yeah, hell yeah. It speaks to the, the coin of rights and responsibilities. So... I think a lot of people have perhaps like a, a lot of us have maybe like an inaccurate view of um, rights and freedom and a liberal, liberal democracy. The flip side of the rights and freedom is that it's someone else's responsibility to maintain that. So the classic, uh, I guess like epithet or quote or whatever is my rights, your responsibility and vice versa. So I think it really speaks to that. Yeah, I like it. Um, and I've now partially forgotten the third one. Had some had some Ooh. machine learning um, idea related here. Oh, nice. I don't think it was going to be that good. It was probably just very clunky and forceful. Um, <laughs> it's always good, though. I think maybe it was along the lines of there are... There's a lot of benefits to thinking in algorithmic ways um so the, the definition that i was kind of thinking of was um and it's a bit of an old definition i'll probably butcher it because as we know i'm not nowhere near um even a beginner in machine learning and these kind of ideas yet but there's a, a rough definition of machine learning that um, a computer program can learn from experience e in regards to task T as measured by performance on metric P if um, if with E P goes up basically like a computer mm. program is said to have learnt in relation to some task which you measure how well it's doing on that task by some kind of performance metric if, given some experience, its score on P goes up. So is this like the underpinnings of linear regression? Yeah, like something, you know, very, very fundamental to machine learning. Just um, like, like machine learning is probably best thought of as an extension of statistics. Um, sort of like automating a lot of processes but so yeah like it's there is a linear regression component um i'm just trying to 
scratch my head and think about how that was linking in with morality though yeah. there was something one in particular that you said where i think it's about how they build upon each other rather than blend i think it was more just a pushback on maybe, maybe i was just trying to link it in with like that we don't just purely have intuitions about these things like in that they they can and i, I think maybe it was actually linked to as well how you said science is um we should our moral systems should be informed by science it's like whatever we value um from a moral perspective whatever whatever that is like if maximum morality say is the task what it, we can attach some kind of p metric to that some kind of performance metric to it and then use scientific evidence to better improve our scores on that p metric yeah something like that as i said clunky (laughs) no it's good i think it's great um to get a little bit meta about our conversations obviously we speak a lot on the edges of our knowledge sometimes we throw in some concrete coherence other times not so much and i think the blend is good yeah um bullish and bearish bullish this week on seeing the sky so it's i i'm really enjoying the area that i'm living in as i've spoken about previously there's so much the sky seems so expansive um it's not the horizon is very low because there's not a lot of buildings and things around like that to reduce basically the amount of sky available to you and even with that said i don't spend enough time looking up um Mm. so on my evening walks i'm trying to remember to like not look at the footpath but like actually gaze up into the sky a lot more like make sure i've got a clear path in front of me but just walk along Mm -hmm. looking at sort of a star that's you know 45 degrees angle upwards rather than looking at you know, 45 degrees downwards, basically at the end of my shoes. Um, so there's that. Yesterday I was just laying in the backyard, listening to some music while I was doing, doing my weights and looking up at the sky again and was like, and that was what prompted me to actually, um, revisit this conscious book because, um, in it, Annika speaks about one time when she had a massive loss of ego where she realized that I wasn't laying on my back looking up at space. I was already in space. Like we are on mm. the earth already in outer space. And she yeah. said that was a massively profound moment. The final thing I'll link in here is this, this is very sort of like fluffy, um, guru-y, kind of naturalistic reasoning that the evidence-based fitness health and fitness community sort of pushes back on and that's one of the things that i didn't actually like about the quote-unquote evidence-based community is that hyper scientific sort of thinking but what i was going to say here is i think there's it's probably trivial but there is some health benefit simply to looking up at the sky like look at the stars each night and be just doused in awe and realize how small 
you are and how vast the universe is. And that's actually like, I think a very healthy and health promoting thing to do. And I think you could draw links to say the, um, the health cost of living in a city, probably some percentage of that is the light pollution that prevents you from looking at the stars. And that, I think, you know, the line of reasoning that I'm going down, but if I was to say there's some health benefit to hang on, I can't read your scene. Showing, for listeners, I'm showing the camera what I wrote down while Lyndon was talking. This link to not seeing this guy. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, so as Lyndon was just ranting about that, I, I was, cause this is something I've thought about also not to steal your fire or hand it back in a second. I've thought about this exact thing where it's like the light pollution and the inability to like see the stars and see the expansiveness perhaps is sort of like contributing to this selfishness and self um, really like egocentric thought that can become like detrimental to ourselves because we're just so like, yeah, anyway, but that was... No, I I agree. Um, And I think we can... So it's difficult to say... You know, not seeing the stars makes you selfish. But if you sort of do just treat it as a counterfactual and just say, if you could see the stars, that would prime you for more um, unselfish behavior, then the negation of that or the taking away of the stars is actually edging you towards more selfish behavior. It's like if you've got two, two simple neural pathways that you can prime there, and one does one thing, then taking that one thing away probably nudges you towards the other thing. Yeah, on, like, funnily enough, you mentioned priming. I think, like, it's a similar phenomenon in a a philosophy of science um, framework or thought process of, like, a lot of the evidence on priming has turned out to be flimsy and hasn't replicated. However, there really is probably something there and anyone who, anyone worth their salt would probably agree. I think this is probably a similar case. Like it's really hard to give some concrete, um, arrive at some concrete conclusions around this idea that we're talking about. However, there is probably something to this. Um, and yeah, I do agree. I just think that that it is just one of many things, like one of the many you know, like the evolutionary term, like spandrels. Um, it's one of the many spandrels of our modern society that come al- that is like a baggage with all this really good progress that we get. It's one of these um, perhaps slightly unfortunate outcomes. It's like, okay, if we want an industrial technological revolution with light and cars and buildings and work and affluence, it's like you're going to sort of have to give up the stars. Yeah, I'll quickly address the priming thing. Um, I think priming was maybe the wrong... See, that that's like... I was using priming in the non-academic or how it's studied in, say, like mm. clinical psychology... Um, not clinical, um, cognitive psychology. Um, what I was probably more thinking is like prompting. Like there, there's obviously something to yeah. being primed, but it's like what priming means yeah. in these particular academic settings, you know typically means something subconscious, something you're not aware of, but I'm talking about a slightly more powerful force than that. 
and prompting is, hmm. yeah, like, as you said, like, there probably is some kind of priming effect there because, like, if we scale it up, we do detect it. And I'll give um, another example here that I think is really interesting. Um, we talked about, I talked about framing, um, I think, last week for my bullish. And I was thinking about it this week again. Framing is so cool. And one of the studies that I like in this area is um, people are given probability problems and, you know, saying what's the, given this information, what's the conditional probability that some person has, um, you know, breast cancer, just the classic sort of like Bayes, Bayes theorem kind of conditional probability. And when they're just given it like that, they don't do very well at all yet when prompted to think about it in regards to frequencies rather than um, probabilities. So rather than thinking, you know, 0.8%, if you then go, okay, eight people out of a thousand and you start working with sets of concrete objects, people actually score Mm. much better on that test. Additionally, if you prompt people to... Um, go about the classic um, Linda is a bank teller and a feminist, um, you know, what's more likely, when prompted to give what, give the answer they think the most, a very logical person would give, people score better on that. Like, so when prompted Mm. to reason in ways that they think a logical person would, they score better on a test of logical reasoning. That's so funny. <laughs> Which sort of does just go like that speaks to the under the surface intuition things coming to play and someone having that prompt which helps bring the intuition to light that ah oh, I should think logically because this is a logical problem that I need to solve mm. whereas other like people are just looking at that and going I don't know how to do this so I'm just going to think yeah. very socially and I'm not going to use logic to get through it. That's great. It's like a little cue, uh, clue. Yeah, sorry, that's all a bit off the point, but I I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think, like, it's, I don't know where this fits in, but it's probably just, like, neural networks. It's like, it's just um, queuing off these semantic networks. That would be maybe, like, a right way to think about. Not that example, but, um, like, a lot of the the priming stuff and, like, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right. It's It goes to show that, say, with this cue, a different network is fired and it's not, you know, it's not deterministic that someone is always going to reason about this thing in this single way. If they're prompted or cued in another way, they can reason about it in another way and that way can be demonstrably more effective or better. So then... Hmm the work I think of the individual is then is, okay, how do I bring myself to self-cue or how do I develop the intuition to go about it in the other way? Yeah. Um, I've needed to pee for like the last 30 minutes, so maybe we should make a clunky ending of this. That's fine. Um, (laughs) Okay, industrial solutions, uh, sorry, industrial societies, I think might be, maybe one day we end up in a dome with artificial stars but that somehow Mm. carries still net benefit than living completely 
wild lifestyle. Yeah, it's funny that you brought up the sky thing because that is something that I've been really actively trying to do. I don't know for how long now, but recently. And like every time I'm walking, I look up and I'm just like, <laughs> just have this kind of crude thought that like, oh, looking up is so much better than looking down when I'm walking. Massively agreed. All right. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. We really appreciate it. That yeah. was uh, that was all over the shop, that one. But hopefully there was some value in there for you. Um. Yeah, that is the, that is the feature, as we say, not the bug. Hope you guys enjoy your Monday or whatever day it is that you are listening to this on. All right, thanks everyone. Bye. Thank you everyone for listening again. We really appreciate it. And uh, as usual, if you found this episode insightful or entertaining at the least. Um, Please feel free to give us a rating or a review and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. All right, take care. Bye.